So I'm going to take you back to a passage in the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we see something rather unusual. Um, actually, I'm, I'm not going to read that passage. I'm just going to tell you about it. But in that passage, we see that God has permitted slaves. Now, please understand that the slavery back then was so very different than the slavery America has, has uh, known in its past and that England has known and Europe has, has known. And generally, people were slaves because they came into financial difficulties. And because of that, they would basically give their lives in service to that person that they were indebted to for however many months or years, and so they would be enslaved by them. Now, that was not an altogether bad thing because we do learn, and there's a provision for those slaves that truly loved their masters, that they could become slaves for this master, or maybe I'll use the term servant because the word slave has, in our generation, has so many negative, and I understand this, so many negative implications to it. But these would become servants of the master for the rest of their lives. They loved being the servant of this kind, generous, benevolent master. To do this, they would take, and Moses directed, they would take the servant to a door and press his ear up against the door. And with an awl, you're cringing already, press it up against the ear and you got it. They would pierce his ear. These were called pierced ear slaves. Now, why on the ear? Well, okay, maybe practically that would be a good place since mo even back then they would have earrings and that would be a good place to put an awl through and it would be a mark of ownership. But can I suggest a symbolism as well? From that day forward, the master had the servant's ear. The servant would always listen to the master and obey. Jesus said in John 10, my, as the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice. They listen to me and follow me. This concept of listening to the master, to the good shepherd, and following is actually throughout Scripture. It is, and Israel, many times, in their rebellion and in their turning away from God, were compared to dumb sheep. All we like sheep, you know the verse, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, referring to the, the coming Messiah. This is Isaiah 53. Seven prophesied 700 years before Jesus came. On him would be laid the sins of us all. All of you wandering sheep, all of your sins placed on him. Jesus owns us. We looked at Revelation and we discovered that his name is on us. Now, before I actually look at that passage in Revelation, I want us to look at one more in the Old Testament before we move on to the new. And you can turn with me on this, and it is Deuteronomy chapter 11. Now, Deuteronomy is a funny book, uh, not humorous, but it's interesting in that it's Deutero 
which in Greek, and Deuteronomy, by the way, comes from the Greek. It doesn't come from the Hebrew. Deuteronomy, deuteros, and nomos means second law. In other words, Moses, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, is repeating the Ten Commandments, the laws. He's actually expanding on them. Now, he, he reminds them not only of the law, but God's challenge, follow me. Now, last week, we, we, I referred to, in the last two weeks, actually, Deuteronomy 28. If you obey me, here's all the blessings that you're going to receive. But if you do not obey me, here's all the cursings and the judgments that will follow. And we realize that is what revelation is about. Revelation, the, in the scroll that Jesus holds in his hand, are all the blessings of the inheritance that he is giving and pouring out to his saints that we only hear a little bit of in that Seven-time repeated refrain, to him who overcomes, at the end of every letter. And then the last two chapters, that's where we see it beginning to completely unfold for us. All of the blessings that we have in Christ, but they're sealed by the judgments. That is, God is bringing redemptive judgment to the world to cause their eyes to turn back to him, the one who created him. And so that's what Deuteronomy 28 is all about, the blessings and the cursing. And, and, and again, let me re repeat, these are cursings, but they are redemptive judgments. The purpose is that if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and repent and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And Solomon says this in a prayer on the heels of church gang, he says to Israel, if we refuse to follow him, and he repeats some of those judgments of Deuteronomy 28. Well, my point is this, is that in the Old Test, in Deuteronomy, we, we have this significance, and it's, and it's a lifting up of the word of God, of the law of Moses. And it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 11, and it's also um, found in Deuteronomy 6, but I'm going to read this one from Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. And he's talking about the word of the Lord. He says, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. And he goes on and on. Now, again, this is a repetition of something he said just five chapters earlier in Deuteronomy 6. Here's what, I want you to bring your, here's what I want to bring your attention to. He wants them to take Scripture and on a very small piece of paper, write a passage of Scripture, fold it up, and then they bind that, generally in a little box. During Jesus' day, they called them phylacteries, but they would take that little box that had a scripture and they would tie it around their wrist or their hand, or they would take it and bind it around their forehead and tie it. But they did that as symbols on the hand and on the forehead. Now, some of you know where I'm already going with this. Why the hand and why the forehead? 
Let me suggest something to you. Because they were saying, as a covenantal people, as the people of God, I am taking the word of God and this covenant that I am now entering in, what we call the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant, and I am taking the words of God and I am binding them on my hand because the hand represents what we do. It represents action. It represents serving the Lord in action on the forehead because that's where the brain is. That's where the mind is. And that then is where we believe, what we think. So the word of God is impressed upon what we think and what we believe and on what we do. That's how the hand and the forehead were symbols. And it's very clear. These are symbols. These are symbols. They're to remind you of something. They're a little picture of something. What then would they be perhaps a picture of? Because we do see this, by the way, in the book of Revelation. So let's go there, okay? So already we have seen this concept of God's name being on his people. And in the second to the last letter that he, that he transcribes to John, we find that to him who overcomes, I'm going to put my name on them. Now, can I suggest that in heaven, I'm not going to look around and see the, the YHWH, short for the tetragrammaton, the four-letter, the real four-letter word, uh, YHWH, Yahweh. I'm not going to see that on Meredith's forehead. I'm not going to see it on Juliana's forehead or Marla's forehead. I can go around the room. All of you believe in Jesus. I don't think we're going to see his name literally inscribed on our forehead, Okay. But that's, where, that's what he says. He's going to put his name on us. Well, let's look. And, and I'm not going to get into the, the symbolism of these, a few things that we're going to look at. But turn to Revelation chapter 7. The name of God is on us. These concepts of the hand and the forehead are symbolic. All right? And as we do that and we turn to Revelation 7, we see this concept of the 144,000. And in this chapter, Jesus dictating to John, or, or, or let me just say this, it is the angel kind of showing John these visions. And in this vision, he sees the 144,000, and then he sees a crowd without number. Okay? And the crowd without number <clears throat> represents every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Chapter 7, verse 9. Let me look back just a little bit, verse 3. And again, I'm, my purpose is not to preach from Revelation 7. I, I want to pull some truths from this as we are trying to see this concept of God's name, okay? Verse 3. The angel says to the other angel, do not harm the land or the sea, or the trees, which, by the way, they did in the very next chapter. But don't harm them until. So whatever follows until, they did before the unfolding of those seven trumpets of judgments that we read in chapter 8. Okay, so are you ready with me? Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. The seal. I want us to unwrap that just a little bit and build on that, okay? 
Now, understand that these 144,000, and, and you can see the list of the tribes that they are from, I realize that there are many that I love to learn from, either listening to them or reading them, and they would suggest that these are actually, this is actually symbolic of the church. Um, I, I'm going to disagree with that, only because I never see, th these are from Israel, and he lists seven tribes. The, the, the understanding that I have from script, the New Testament is that the name Israel never refers to the church in the New Testament. Now, don't get me wrong. In the Old Testament, we do see that. In, in Jeremiah 31, that's quoted in Hebrews 8, we see that there is a new covenant, Jeremiah pr predicts, a new covenant in God's name that he is going to give to the house of Judah and to the house of Israel. And he's going to put his spirit in us. No, we will not need any man to teach us because the spirit of God will be in us. Okay? He's going to be our teacher. But this is a new covenant that he's going to make. And Rome, Hebrews 8 quotes that, but then applies it to the church. So I, I want you to understand there are passages in the Old Testament that are given for like the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but they are fulfilled in the church. But we're in the New Testament here. And the name Israel is used. And I'm just going to suggest this and, and be good Bereans. Bereans, listen to what Paul said, and then they studied the scriptures to see if it was not so. Okay, so be good Bereans. You can write this down. I want you to check this out. Do a little word study on the name Israel. It is never used to refer to the church. Actually, in Romans 11, when Israel is grafted out of the vine, the Gentiles who believe in Jesus are grafted in. In verse 25, it talks about the Gentiles coming to their full number. Verse 26 says, and all Israel will be saved. That doesn't mean that all the church will be saved. So I'm sorry if, if I'm losing you here, but the name Israel in the New Testament is never a substitute for the church. These are Jews. But I'm going to suggest they're not Jews like the Jews of the Old Covenant. The list of names of tribes that you see here does not coincide with any list of the tribes or names in the Old Testament. Number one, the name Dan and Ephraim are not found here, and they're part of the 12 tribes. What we do see here is Levi, but we also see Manasseh and Joseph. But Manasseh was the son of Joseph. And so it's just a very odd list. And my opinion is that it simply is referring to the new covenant not the old covenant where we find all of these lists, but the new covenant of believers in Jesus who are Jewish. And I'm going to suggest that the number 144,000, which is 12 times 12 times 1,000, is a very symbolic number. They are called, they have been sealed on their foreheads. They've been sealed on their foreheads. I'm going to look at that word seal in just a moment, but why on their foreheads? Because this is, if you will, the name of God that has been placed on their foreheads, and it is a mark of ownership that God has over them. Turn with me to chapter 14, verse 1. We see now just like seven verses that talk about this group of people, the 144,000. I'm not going to read all seven verses, but look at verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their where? On their foreheads. 
Now, this is where God's name, this is where God's seal is. This is God's sense of his ownership of us. And it's on our foreheads. If you were to look around on our foreheads, you will not see the name of God, but I'm going to tell you the name of God is on you, and it will be on you for all of eternity, and it's because he owns you. Now, as you go, as you go through this passage, you also discover that these have been, look there in verse, I, I believe it's uh, verse 6, they follow the lamb wherever, I'm sorry, verse 4, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read how the Greek would be translated literally. And the NIV doesn't translate it literally. But this is what it would be literally. They were purchased from among men as first fruits to God and the Lamb. And I'm just going to suggest this. Because I realize there's about a thousand different interpretations of who these 144,000 are out there in, in, by godly men and women who love Jesus passionately. And, and I'm just going to suggest to you that this is not a group of believers in Jesus who happen to be Jewish that live in the end times. Now, you, you've already heard me say the revelation is not all about the end times. It's about the now times. It's about the then times. It's about the, the entire church age. Now, some of them, some of the passages and visions are for the time right before Christ comes and when he comes, which is chapter 19. But I'm going to suggest to you that these aren't Jewish believers in the end times, but they are the first fruits of those who have been purchased. When Paul talks about the first believers in Achaia, he calls them the first fruits of Achaia. When Paul writes about Jesus being the first one bodily raised from the dead, receiving a resurrection body. He calls him the first fruit of the resurrection. The first one or the first ones. These 144,000 are the first ones who were Jewish, who were purchased by the blood of the lamb. They were the first fruits not the last fruits. They are the ones who first believed in Jesus, not the last ones in the end times to believe in Jesus. And in the beginning, for an entire decade, the church was almost exclusively Jewish. They were, Romans 9, Paul calls them the remnant. The remnant. I believe this is who he's referring to. But my point is over there. I just want you to see, their, God's name is on their forehead. And he owns them. He seals them. And, and what, what, what does it mean for God to seal us? May you have been sealed by God. Wow. Interesting. Turn with me to first, excuse me, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Let's look at this concept of sealing and what is this all about? Now, you, you saw... Uh, the, the, the little scroll that I had, and it had seals, but those seals represented judgments. This seal of God does not represent judgment, okay? This seal, it says in verse 13, represents something very different. Verse 13, he says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, listen to this. Having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. 
the Holy Spirit. Once you've been, once you have believed, Peter, when you believed in Jesus this past February and surrendered your heart to him, that's your testimony. God says he sealed you with his Holy Spirit. It was his mark of ownership on you. But it's not just a mark of ownership, but it's a guarantee. The Spirit of God in us is that seal. It's a guarantee. He, the Spirit of God, is a guarantee of all the inheritance that you have been given, all of that rich inheritance. Romans 8 speaks so clearly of some, at least some of this inheritance. Ephesians 1, the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. These are the things that he has promised us, that the Holy Spirit is there. He's put in your heart and sealed you in other words, that's, his, that's God's mark of ownership. Just like when the, the tomb of Jesus, the stone was rolled over it, Pontius Pilate put his seal, or he had his seal placed over the tomb. I, I love the, the, how many of you ever seen the movie Risen? You've seen the movie Risen. Come on, I know there's a number of you. If you've not seen the movie Risen, I'm going to encourage you. You've got to see it. Powerful movie. Uh, it, it's, it, it's a made-up story, but there is so much in it that it's, we read about in the Gospels, but it's a testimony of the centurion who is trying to find the body of Jesus because there's a rumor that he supposedly has been raised from the dead. What? And that that... Rumors got to be quashed, they say. And so he's trying to find this Jesus. And I'm not going to spoil it for you, but fascinating testimony of, of how this story unfolds. I, I, I love it. But part of the problem is that when Jesus was raised from the dead, the seal, which they show as ropes, were snapped. They weren't cut. They were snapped. And he's trying to piece this together and I'm just going to let you know, obviously, he becomes a believer in Jesus, all right? So, spoiler alert, it's out there. This guy gets saved, all right? Because all of the evidence points to death did not hold Jesus in the grave. Something amazing happened, and he rose from the dead, and the power of that resurrection just burst forth and broke these seals of Pontius Pilate on that stone, on that tomb. But those, that seal was this concept of, this is Pontius Pilate's authority. This is his property. Do not enter into this tomb. Do not do it, because they were afraid the disciples would come and steal the tomb, Jesus' body. That They weren't going to steal the tomb. No, they weren't going to do that. They were, were going to try and steal the body. That's, that was the rumor, Okay. And they even bring that into the story risen. You got to watch it. You got to watch it, church. Amazing. And so this seal that God has upon us after we believe is the spirit of God in us. And he's a deposit. He's, he's in essence saying, God is going to protect you. We saw that in Revelation 7. The 144,000, they were sealed. And then he suggests to you that that seal was the mark of God, it was the name of God on them, symbolically on their foreheads. This is what they believe. Jesus is the Christ. He is the one who died for me, rose from the dead, that if I believe, I have eternal life. The gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. By believing this, 
I am now marked with the seal of God, or the 144,000 being Jew, the early church, the early Jewish believers in Jesus. They cannot be numbered. So it's 12 times 12, 12 meaning the pe- number, which is a, a number for the people of God, thousand meaning many. That's the symbolism that's here in this text. And without number, God's seal, God's protection. Hey, before you bring judgment, and if you read chapter 8, the judgments begin with the grass and the vegetation and the sea, and then it moves on to people. So, before these trumpet judgments are poured out, I need my people sealed. I need them protected. So, I'm going to suggest to you, the name of God is given to you as God saying to you, I'm going to protect you. When Andy put his name on the bottom of his toy's feet, he in essence was saying, I own you. And I'm going to protect you. When Woody gets the little tear in in Toy Story 1, his goal was, when I come back from camp, I'm going to have it sewn up, right? It's It's a mark that God's love was upon, even as Andy loved his toys. You're bearing with me with this illustration, okay? It's, it maybe is a silly illustration, but I personally love it, so don't offend me by... Anyway, the truth is, <laughs> the truth is that God, th- this name of God on you, the seal of God on you, it says, God loves you. God will protect you. It is his promise, and he will guarantee that every blessing that he has for his people will come to you. It is part of your inheritance. We receive all of that inheritance in part in this life. It's, it, the, the Greek word that's used there is erebon. It is a down payment or a deposit that guarantees. It's like when you purchase a home, you put a down payment on it, and that says, hey, to the owner, there's more to come. I'm going to purchase your home. Okay, that's the erebon. That's the Greek word. It's the deposit that guarantees. That's the Spirit of God in you, guaranteeing all of this for you. You know, can I just say, it is so easy for us, so easy for us to fall into the temptation as we look around our world, and especially in America today. Wow, we were once a Christian nation and we are rapidly moving into what is commonly called a being, becoming a post-Christian nation. But church, we look around and it's like chaos. Do we recognize America anymore? And we're moving towards this, this concept of Sodom and Gomorrah, towards this concept of a nation that Psalm 2 says, we break, he, they, they, the nations break their bands asunder. And, and they mock God. Who are you to think that you own me? Read Psalm 2 sometime. And it's a perfect picture of America today. Who does God think he is? We're, we're independent. We, we think freely. And you know what? In America, we can look around and we can see all of just the junk. We can see the hurts. And we can see so much that is going on and, and just say, God, where are you in all of this? God, looking at your church, looking at the persecution. And then I realize that we, church, we have so many freedoms. 
as Christians in America. And we're starting to feel those freedoms shrink and enclose around us. And we're saying, hey, what is going on here? I want you to know that this has not caught God by surprise. I want you to know that his mark of ownership is still on you. He is going to be protecting you. He's going to keep you secure in the palm of his hand. He's going to watch over you and superintend. He is going to bring forth his blessings and promises regardless of what the devil plans and succeeds in implementing in our nation of America. He will do this. He will protect. He will keep us safe. Now, I am not saying that some of God's followers will not lose their lives. But the judgment that God has upon America does not fall upon his church. And if we experience any of this, it is merely to win back the straying heart. That is it. God's mark of ownership and his love is upon us. I think it's interesting, and, and I'm not going to spend much time on this at all. I'm just going to mention it. But so many people are wondering, even in our day, what's the mark of the beast? What's the mark of the beast? This is relevant, by the way. Um, oh, my goodness, I don't want to have 666 stamped on my wrist or on my forehead. Boy, would that look unattractive. 666, what, in red, neon yellow, orange? Horrible. Doesn't match my outfit. That's what the ladies... No, I'm, I'm just joking with you. And, and honestly, we, 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 I think we're really missing the point in Revelation 13, which is a passage that talks about the name of the beast on their foreheads. And what did I just read in chapter 14, verse 1? The name of God on our foreheads. I want you to see this contrast, Okay. It is not a literal mark any more than the name of God on my forehead is a literal thing that you can see. It is not going to be some chip in your wrist or in your forehead. Can you just see that little bump? Oh, what's that on your... No, I'm just kidding. The truth is, it, you're not going to be able to see it because it means so much... It's symbolic. I, I realize that there are those... Their, their hermeneutic for revelation is we take it literally, except where we can't, then we take it symbolically. But wait a second. This isn't historical literature. This is symbolic, prophetic literature. It would be better to say, hey, let's take these all as symbols until it just doesn't fit, and then we take it literally. You see, this is just a different genre of writing than Paul's teachings, or the Gospels, or history, narratives, historical narrative. And so here's my point. It says right there, in chapter 4, I've got to go back to Revelation 14 real quickly. You don't have to. I'm just going to read it to you. And it's, chapter 13 says this. He, referring to the false prophet, okay? You have the beast and the false prophet. The false prophet, he also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on his forehead. Now, the word of God in Deuteronomy 11, where were those phylacteries, if you will, to be tied? on the hand or on the forehead, and we were told that those were to be symbols. They're not just literal. You don't just walk around with the Word of God on your wrist and on your forehead because it looks cool or it's in fashion, but because it's symbolic of God's Word guiding what you do and what you think and what you believe. Even Watch this. The, the mark on his 
would be on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, I'm not going to unscramble 666, just, just as long as you realize Greek does not say 666, it says 666. I'll just leave that. For some of you understand where I'm going with that. You're not going to have 666 written on your forehead. It is the name of the beast, meaning those who receive that name are in allegiance with him. You don't receive the mark of the beast or the, his name accidentally because it is not literal. It is symbolic of you worshiping the beast. And the beast receives his power and authority from the red dragon who is Satan. And I'm just going to suggest to you the contrast. It is not accidental that the very last thing that John talks about in Revelation 13 contrasts with the very first thing chapter 14 verse 1 says. The name of God as opposed to the name of the beast. Who are you in allegiance with? Who owns you? Who has marked you? Who has sealed you? Whose name is on you? Is it the name of the, the devil or, or, or the world systems and all of the attractions of the world? Is that what you've given your life to? Or have you given your life and surrendered it to Jesus Christ? And then his name will be on you. So I, I said it would only be a few minutes. I'm done with that. I'm going to move on. I, I want us to look now at Galatians chapter 6. Church, this is beautiful. What we're going to read here, it's one verse. And when you understand it, it's going to be like, wow, yes. One verse. And it's the second to the last verse in the entire book or letter that Paul writes to the Galatians. This is what he says. Finally, let no one cause me trouble. In our vernacular, we would say, all of you, get off my back. He says, finally, let no one cause me trouble for or because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The word for, in Revelation 13, the mark of the beast, that's the Greek word karagma. It would be a brand or a stamp. Now, it's not going to be a stamp like when you stamp coins, but when it's referring to an animal, it was a brand. And it is generally meaning a brand for an animal. The mark of the beast would be a brand, and that word karagma is generally the brand for animals. Animals, church. That is not this word. This is the Greek word, and you've heard it in English. It's the Greek word stigma. Stigma. Now, in our language, it, it carries a negative connotation. But in the Greek, it simply was a brand that was placed on humans to mark them as slaves. Paul is basically saying, I have the brand marks of Jesus on me. What would they be? Listen to me. In Galatians, he's talked about his persecutions for Jesus. In his attempt to share the gospel, he ended up getting sick. And so 
We don't know what his original intention. I think he was wanting to go to Ephesus, but regardless, he continues down the, the, there's a, the, it, within the Tarsus Mountains, there's a river, and he was, they were following that valley, and it swings around a lake, or yeah, a lake, to Pisidian Antioch, and that's where he lands. He apparently got sick. I'm not going to get into it any more than that, um, except to say that he got sick. It apparently affected his eyesight, and now he ends up in this region of Galatia, specifically in Pisidian Antioch, a city, and he preaches the gospel to the Galatians. But all of his persecutions, all of his sicknesses, and if you were to go to 2 Corinthians 11, you're going to find this laundry list of all of the really horrible things that have happened to Paul. And he says this, he says, these are the marks of my apostleship. I am a servant of God, and how are you going to tell? Why on earth would I have authority to speak truth to any of you Corinthians? Is it because I, I do miracles? Well, I'm not going to say that's not a reason. That's actually one of the marks of his apostleship. But he doesn't appeal to that. You know what he appeals to? All of these horrible things that have happened to him. Three times shipwrecked. And that doesn't even include the shipwreck we read about in, in the book of Acts. Because Corinthians was written before that time. So he was shipwrecked at least four times. A night and a day in the open sea, he says in 1 Corinthians 11. And these are the things that mark his apostleship. What? But these are the very things that are the marks of Jesus upon him. And in essence, he is saying to the Galatians, because there are some of them that are stirring up trouble, some of them that are saying, hey, you Gentiles, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You know, you've got to follow the feasts. I mean, if you really want to be a good Christian, you're going to follow the feasts of Israel. And Paul is saying, guys, no, Christ fulfilled all of these things. This, this is the law. The law superintended us until we came to Christ. And, and if circumcision, if, if I didn't preach against circumcision, then why am I receiving so much flack from the Jews? He said, no, circumcision means nothing. What counts is a new creation in Christ. And so all of this he is saying, I have, I have been persecuted and I bear these marks, these stigmata, these, the, the stigmas, if you will, of Jesus because I'm his servant. And guess what? He has protected me every step of the way. And I bear these marks. They're, they're not nail wounds in his hands. I realize the Roman Catholic Church took hold of that word stigma, and it became like someone having the stigma of Christ. They were the nail marks in the hands and the feet. That's, that's not what Paul is referring to. Paul's not saying, hey, I have these stigmata, and my hands bleed on a kitten. He's not saying that. He's just, these stigma, the, the, they are the marks of Christ on me that I am his servant, and you are his servant. And we go through trials in life. We're trying hard to serve Jesus. And it seems as if one bad thing happens to the other. It's like, God, what is going on? And God is saying, this is my mark of ownership upon your life. Now watch me. Even though Paul was shipwrecked, how many times, church? At least four times, Paul never lost a life. Paul realized that God was with him every step of the way, moving him on to the next city to proclaim the gospel. And God's marks of ownership are upon you. 
so that you would be able to say to them, even as Paul says to those who are opposed to him, hey guys, back off because I have the marks of Jesus on me. I have the marks of his ownership. I have these, I have these wounds. I have been through hard times and I have seen my God come through every time. He has never abandoned me. He has watched over me carefully, securely. He is bringing me to this place of proclaiming the gospel to you and I will continue to be a father in the faith to you. No, don't get me wrong. I, I know my history. I know that Paul, in about 66, 67 AD, was, he lost his life as a martyr. And there came a time in which even though God watched over all of these tragedies in his life, there was a time in which, in essence, I'm going to paraphrase God. God said, Paul, your time serving me has been so beautiful. I want you to come home to be with me now. Your job is done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have run the race and you have not given up. And my marks of ownership are all over your body. Marks. All over, scars all over your body. And you have never given up on me. I want you to be with me now. Paul, probably 65 or so years of age. It was now his time to go on. He had run the race. He would kept the faith. The marks of Jesus and of ownership were upon him. I want, you to I want to tell you how significant this idea of God's ownership on you is. That God loves you, he protects you, and he will bring forth his promises. God sees it as his duty, if you will, his, his promises. He's going to bring them to pass. He will watch over you. When it feels like God is nowhere around, that's when he absolutely guaranteed is there for you. You know, it's, 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 when I got married, um, I, I have loved marriage. I have loved being a dad. And I can remember as I was going through seminary, I had two children. And I was, at the time, I was going to school full time. I had to back out on those hours, so I was still considered full-time, but I was now working a full-time job as well. And wow, was that exhausting. But I realized, I believe God wants me to go to school. I want my wife to stay home as much as she possibly can to care for these kids, to train them. I, I saw that as my responsibility too, but my wife could do it now full-time to feed and care for them. And so I realized... I, I'm going to take it upon myself, and I'm going to provide for our family. But I'm going to, I want you to know that is, as noble as that goal was, and I believe that I was guided by the Spirit of God, it was hard. And I, 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 I'm a kind of guy, I need at least seven hours of sleep a night, but I would regularly get five and a half to six. And I just don't do too well with that. As years go on, I graduate from seminary, and now I'm starting a church, and I believe God's called me to plant this church with my wife and now our family, and uh, I can't remember how old Kate was. This is like 94, so she is eight years old, and Juliana is five. Um, Rose is like two, um, Rose, uh, and, and China's in the oven. And so we're, I'm planting this church, and, but I'm working a full-time job, and it was hard. Now, I have always enjoyed putting my children down. I had an opportunity to do that with my grandkids, by the way. 
It, it, was, it brought back memories. They didn't sleep too well that night. Anyway, I digress. And as, when I would put my kids down, I would, each evening I, I would read the Word of God to them, talk about it, we'd have a discussion, and then I would pray over them, and then I would sing a song over them. And there were times in which I would be reading the story to them, and before and Kate would say, Dad, you're falling asleep. Oh. And I would start reading again, and before you know, and then he Dad, you're falling asleep. Okay, I'm going to stand up, guys, and I would try my best not to fall asleep. And it's like 9 o'clock, right? And I'm reading to them. Or sometimes it didn't, I was able to actually read through it and not fall asleep one time. And I would start praying over them. And then my kids would think, is Dad praying in the Spirit? He's praying in tongues? What is this, Dad? Dad, are you falling asleep? No, no, I'm not falling asleep. And I would, but it was, it was tiring. And, and I'm only showing you this as, as a, an, a very imperfect dad. I love my kids with all of my heart. I would do anything for my wife and for my children. I would work as hard as I needed to. I would sacrifice whatever I needed to. I would seek to protect them no matter what. But I want you to know it was hard. And being a frail human being, man, did I reach my limits a lot. Not with patience with my kids. I think my kids and my wife were great. It was just me. But you know what? I, I just, I loved that opportunity to serve as hard as it was. See, your heavenly father, he finds no weariness ever in providing for you. He can read you a story and never fall asleep. Praise God. The Jesus himself intercedes for you day and night, and he never stands before the end. Father, we he starts, Jesus, I don't understand you. Jesus, wake up. He never does that. He may have done that once on a boat. I digress. The truth is, Jesus never falls asleep on his watch, and he intercedes for you, and he cares for you. And he has all of this inheritance as the elder brother offering it to you. Don't give up yet. Don't give, come on, keep following me. Keep try, I have such good things. My name is on you. Just look at the bottom of your foot one more time. That's it. Just let that encourage you. And at the very end, because I realize my time is up, at the very end of Toy Story 3, and this is why we all cried. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Andy's going off to college. And at the end of all of the story, he realizes, you know what, I'm not going to put my, I'm not, the, 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 the toys originally thought they had thrown him out because of an accident. His mom actually accidentally did that, but he was going to put them up in the attic, and he decides, I'm not going to even put them up in the attic. I am going to give them away to a girl, a young girl, who will love them and care for them just like I did. And we've already met this girl in the story, by the way. And so he takes that bag uh, or box now, of toys, and he brings them to her house, and you can see his name on the bottom of their feet, and he just starts playing with them. And the story ends with him showing how much he loved those toys because his name was on them. And he would play with this little girl with the toys and, you know, Woody and, you know, 
Buzz Lightyear to the rescue to infinity and beyond. And, you know, he was going to save the world or at least save the toys. And, you know, he was playing with all of these toys. And then it came time. And he said, please take care of my toys well. And he climbed into his car and he drove off to college. And we just were sitting there. And I'm starting to tear up right now. And, it, and it's like, wow. What an emotional experience. But it ends on the fact that the toys are saying, hey, we have each other. Can I just tell you this? Jesus will never, ever leave you. He has no college he's heading off to. He will never leave you. His name is on you forever. Because forever and ever and ever, he will own you. And he will protect you and love you and care for you and bring about every rich promise that he has given you without fail. And he's given you a deposit of his spirit because he says, guys, if you like it now, and, and I know it's hard, but you know what? When heaven comes, oh, man, it is going to be amazing. All that inheritance, every bit of it in full will be ours. Church, can you stand with me? If we could just have the lights. Some of you come this morning and you've been wondering the degree or the extent to which God truly loves you. Maybe this past week has been hard and you're just wondering, God, I don't get this. I know your word says you love me, but can I just remind you, his name is on you. It will never be erased. It will never be removed because he's watching over you. And he's keeping you safe every step of the way. And he is just simply saying, I just want your trust and your allegiance. That's all I want. See, the sheep hears the good shepherd's voice and follows him. Amen. And Father, I just ask for every single one of us gathered here this morning, Take these truths and, and this one truth of your name, your seal, being upon us. And with that truth, God, guard our hearts. The enemy's been feeding some of us lies this past week. That says God doesn't really love you or he doesn't love you that much. Or he loves this person a whole lot more than you. Father, I just ask all of those lies under the blood. We're making a choice today, God. And we're making that choice to believe you. And we're looking in the mirror and we see in the spirit that name of God. We're looking on the bottom of our souls and we see your name. It is on us, God. And you will never fail us. And you will never, ever give up on us. Take this word and seal it on our foreheads and in our minds, on our hands and in all we do. And I just ask you, Lord, watch over us. May we never forget what it means that you own us. We are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.